Black Doctors Podcast. Hello and welcome back. I am Stephen. I am an anesthesiologist, critical care medicine physician, as well as medical ethicist, and your host for the Black Doctors Podcast. This is uh, such an incredible episode for me. This conversation, rather, is going to be full circle. I have today as a guest, Dr. Bianca Bush. She is a veteran of the Black Doctors Podcast. She initially appeared on season one, episode three. She was the third person I interviewed uh, for this podcast, and she is back. Dr. Bush, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So the last time we talked online, at at least, was uh, in the middle of a pandemic. It was a podcast that just launched. You were still in fellowship in Boston. So obviously, a lot has changed. We've both moved. We've mm-hmm. both started new jobs and new business ventures. So, so excited to, to catch up with you throughout uh, the next couple minutes. Yeah, and glad to be here. So much has happened, like you said. So 2020, so graduated fellowship in 2021. What a time. Didn't have an in-person graduation because it was still the pandemic. Um, we moved down to Texas to be closer to family. So that's where we are now. I did start my practice in 2020. So when I was a still fellow, still fellow so had that going on, but then decided to expand to um, a group practice and also a more focused practice for college students. And that started in the fall of 2022. So it's not quite a year old, um, but it's been a lot of fun. Had a child since the last time. <laughs> Congratulations. So adorable. Yeah, so that's another um, big addition. Now I'm a mom. So yeah, a lot has changed in the last three years. Yeah. And I'm, getting my, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm so excited. But a lot of the folks out there listening don't know who you are. So would you mind just introducing yourself and telling them who you are? Okay, sure. Yes. I am Bianca Bush, an adult child and adolescent psychiatrist. I provide psychotherapy and medication support. I really do continue to see kind of all ages. My youngest patient now is 11. My oldest patient is in their 60s, but I do have a special focus, um, specialization in college age or transitional age youth. What else could I say? I love providing therapy. Um, a lot of people say a rare breed of psychiatrists and that I do therapy and provide medications. And in particular, I like to do a kind of talk therapy called psychodynamic um, talk therapy, which is really thinking about how your past impacts your present and sort of looking for themes along along your years. And I love it. I love what I do. So, Fantastic. Yeah. It's good to hear because there's always questions about burnout and medicine and yeah. psychiatry. Like, honestly, I've thought about it sometimes. Like, I really could have probably done psychiatry. Like I really like talking to all the psychiatrists, you and and Kevin and Amanda, and it's like, wow, did I make the right decision? So well, I, no, you're do you're doing that. Now you're getting to talk to people through this platform, right? So, <laughs> Absolutely. So, there you go. So you, you have found a way. Um and I would say this probably I think you probably enjoy your work well, but this is perhaps a burnout measure for you, right? Um something yeah. that gives fulfillment, joy, pleasure, and that kind of thing. I will say I was pretty intentional in thinking about what I would do after residency and fellowship for the sake of not getting burnt out. Mm. And that's a hard thing to do. You know, some sacrifices you make, right? Like I'm not in academic medicine full-time. I do some teaching, but I'm not fully in academics and 
um, I think my life might be a little bit different if, if I were. So anyway, I think, you know, sometimes you, you might make some sacrifices for the sake of not being burnt out, or you might end up doing some things that are really hard for a while that potentially lead to burnout. But I think we can, my hope is that people can find a way to live well, even while doing the things that they love to do. Yeah. And, and I think I'd even go further to say that those are perceived sacrifices when you're stepping away from academia or, mm-hmm. you know, some people decide to work less than full time and, and it's mm-hmm. perceived as a sacrifice, but in actuality, you, you're probably gaining so much more from making those difficult decisions. I, it, were, it has worked for me. I, you know, I love teaching and I still get to do it. I still, mm-hmm. um, I teach a couple of courses uh, at UT or classes, not really courses at UT Southwestern. And then sometimes we'll do a guest lecture at different child fellowship programs across the country. I did one for the Cambridge Fellows last year and the Chop Fellows, I think, the year before. So there are still opportunities. And you're right. I I mean, again, I really like the life that I've crafted for myself. And, you know, we can talk more about that, but it, it feels wonderful. Fantastic. And we first met, the, the people that, that don't know or weren't, joining or weren't following us uh, three years ago when we first started this podcast. But we met at University of Chicago. I was there for my anesthesiology residency. Bianca was there for her psychiatry residency. We mm-hmm. started hanging out. We had some, a bunch of mutual friends. I, I, I love the University of Chicago. It's such a diverse group of residents. And we talked in the last episode about how we helped form this House Staff Diversity Committee. And we just had so many uh, great events. I mean, there was times we'd have like 30, 40 of us at my condo. uh, Was it making uh, Thai food and playing games? And and we just had such a great time in residency. We've obviously kept in touch since then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those were good times. I do miss that. You know, there wasn't really anything. There wasn't like something like that in fellowship. I think we did get together. I think there was something for like all of the Harvard programs, but nothing that was intimate like that, you know, um, I'm curious, did you, uh, was do anything with HDC when you went back when, you know, yeah. yeah. Okay. So it, it was nice to, to see, cause it, so I, I left in 2022, uh, mm-hmm. or no, I left in 2018, went to the Navy for four years and went back for fellowship and yeah, the house Center diversity committee was still going strong. They were a little more organized, believe it or not. They'd had, you know, some leadership elected, they had like official elections and were mm-hmm. working. I think they were still recovering from that pandemic where everything's virtual and, and less in person. And they were starting to have some events. I know they had a, a big party for Juneteenth, um, coordinated Ooh. by uh, Bernice, one of the emergency medicine uh, residents now attendings there. So it was beautiful to see it growing strong and even more yes. so, Bianca, the diversity in the hallways it was just amazing to to walk across, whether it's, you know, Baruch or one of the internal medicine residents um, after a tough day or, or a bunch of general surgery residents that yes. are black. And it's just a, it's a amazing community. Even in anesthesia, they got, you know, some additional black residents. So it really felt like a homecoming. I felt like one of the old heads. Um, but that house staff diversity committee that we started is, is still going strong at University of Chicago. So it was beautiful to see. Oh, man, that's incredible. Very cool. Now, you started out at University of Chicago because you went there for undergrad, correct? Yeah, yeah, sure. 
And I know we talked before because you've stepped into this new role as the college psychiatrist, which we will definitely talk about in, in just a bit. But I remember talking to you about your time at University of Chicago. Obviously, there's a medical school there as well. But ultimately, you went to uh, medical school in Colorado, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was some, I remember. Yeah, there are some conversations you had. There's a big, you know, questions that come up about guidance counselors, especially when you're underrepresented in medicine, you're Black, and you talk to your guidance counselor. A lot of times they don't look like you, or sometimes they do look like you. And there's always a question of the quality of advice that you get. And sometimes, you know, it's it's it, it's just bad advice. And I know you had a very similar situation. Would you mind kind of sharing about that and how you worked through that? Yeah, definitely. Okay, yes. So I was grew, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, and the high school I went to is public high school, not the best high school in the city, um, but you know took full advantage of everything that was there. I love my high school. Go Knights! Um, <laughs> but uh, going from there to the University of Chicago was a big shock. Where I was there with students who had been at the Illinois Math and Science Academy and other sort of private boarding schools across the country which I had no idea even existed. So it was a big academic challenge and it was very hard. Uh, First time in my life I had ever gotten a D in something. Uh, Talk about traumatic. Um, I actually just went back to the campus not too long ago um, and where we used to have chemistry classes. Oh my gosh, I can remember being in lab for hours and hours on end. I'm old, so grades were actually posted up. They weren't online. <laughs> yeah, on, on paper. You had to go in, and see them. Yes, you had to go and actually <laughs> the paper by your student ID number yep. to check your grade. Okay, this is like pre-Canvas and these other things. Blackboard, so anyway, I think. Like, yeah. yeah, Blackboard. So there was a pre-health advising um, team on campus, and you know, I took the classes that you're supposed to take, and I just I didn't do very well on them. So um, I ended up they said, okay, you know, essentially you're not ready to apply to medical school by the time I finished undergrad there. But one thing I will say is um, I am a person of faith and my faith community and my family really, they helped me along the way, right? They were always calling me Dr. Pullen. That's my maiden name and things like that. So I did have someone who was like believing in me, even if like the people who are supposed to be giving advice advisors um, were like, yeah, this is not looking likely. Um, There definitely was someone who really was seen as the person to give advice to a lot of the URM or black pre-meds about, you know, getting into medical school and this and that. And that person actually said, I should just forget about it, pursue public health, don't do medicine. And that was pretty discouraging. Um, So that's actually what I did when I graduated. I moved back home to Albuquerque for two years. I worked in public health. I worked as a public health nutritionist in the WIC program. They probably look at the statistics. I mean, full disclosure, I think my GPA graduating there was like a 2.9 and my science GPA was like a 2.5. So if you're looking at that, Mm -hmm. people would say, absolutely not. There's no way you're getting into medical school. So, you know, this person was probably giving me the advice that they thought was right, probably grounded in statistics and and that kind of thing. Um, but what I didn't know as an undergrad is that I had ADHD. And that's like, you know, cliche days, but I didn't get diagnosed until medical school. I think had I known um, as an undergrad, I probably could have organized myself in a different way, gotten on medication, and probably would have had a different outcome. My grades got better as time went on in undergrad, but I done anyway. I don't want to make say too much about all this stuff, but um, 
But anyway, back to your question, uh, just sort of thinking about who was this? um, And this was someone that everyone would go to for advice, for guidance, for encouragement to be in medicine. They didn't quite find it um, there. So I think, you know, one of the things you asked me sort of offline is like, what do people do if this is supposed to be the source of guidance and encouragement and they're telling you, that actually this isn't going to work out for you, my advice would be to find the places that are going to encourage you and stick with them. Mm. I mean, it looked really impossible for me, right? But I did have a great, uh, at University of Chicago, I don't know if they still do this, but they would pair underrepresented pre-med students with like, not even pre-med students, I think just undergraduate students with mentors. And so I had a PhD mentor who, who recommended I stop taking science classes and then do post-bac. Huh. I was hard-headed. I was hard-headed. Yeah. <laughs> and so I just kept going. I was like, no, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to power through. And I ultimately ended up doing a post-bac. Um, but I probably could have saved myself some misery had I really heeded her advice and done a post-bac. So I would say find you just find the champions who are in your corner and who will figure out how to make it a yes, if that makes sense. Even when it looks impossible, um, I don't know. I believe that there are ways to to make it happen. Yeah, and looking back at it, I mean, it from the outside, it sounds like a, an incredibly rewarding experience. I know at the time it's like, oh, no, you know, not, I'm doing an MPH because I couldn't do medical school. But it's like looking back, I'm like, you you were doing. Tell me you were helping people with the MPH doing WIC, you're, you're starting to say? Yeah, so I, I just had like just a plain old job, really. I was working um, for the New Mexico Department of Public Health and I was seeing families. And that, you know, this has been, that work has been instrumental mm. in all of my work as a physician, right? I was with families, babies coming in, brand new, teaching moms how to breastfeed. Like, who trusted me to, like, as a 20 <laughs> A lot of breastfeed, but they did. Um, teaching cooking classes, so learning basics of nutrition, and really that was patient care. That was patient yeah. care even before I was a physician, so it was valuable. Um, and it, it took me seven years between undergrad and medical school, so it took me a while to retake those classes. I did policy fellowship, and then I worked at Boston Medical Center for four and a half, almost five years. Um, before I started medical school. So, you know, all of that experience is really valuable. So I would also just offer that word of encouragement that, you know, your path may not look like everyone else's. You may not be going straight from undergrad to medical school. That's okay. Um, there's a lot of life that can be lived in the interim. Yeah. And it was it was good. And you're, you're sitting here as living proof. That, that is uh, fantastic. And I've been stuck in a situation. I said uh, some people that are supposed to give advice don't give best advice. And I have to confess, I have been some people. And there is two examples, two people that came to me for advice. And I looked at their transcript. And this was when I was actually still in medical school. So I, you know, I had no idea. I barely made it to medical school. So I don't know why I was giving people advice on like, going to medical school. So... There was two people that came and I looked over their numbers. I'm like, well, their GPA isn't, you know, the average. I looked at the numbers, like much like um, your your advisor probably did, and many advisors do. And was like, hey, you probably shouldn't apply. You should probably redo this or retake your MCAT. Gave some bland, generic advice based upon the numbers. And both of these people ended up proving me wrong, got into medical school on the first attempt. 
Um, one of them's an influencer now. And I'm like, oh my God, like if this person recognizes me, I bet they just like throw darts at my picture on their wall. And I actually ran into this person uh, a couple years ago. It was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I gave you such bad advice. And then they didn't even really remember that conversation. So yeah. I didn't make that much of an impact on them. But I have learned from that. Like I don't offer advice in the same way. If I offer advice, it's more kind of objective and I don't say no, um, mm -hmm. but I kind of work with students that come to make a plan um, mm -hmm. to to make themselves more competitive, I guess. So so I've, I have scaled back from just like offering blanket admissions advice. I'm not an admissions counselor, you know, so. Yeah, that's the thing that's tricky. I mean, unless I feel like unless I was sitting on an admissions committee, I, I, I personally would have a hard time saying. So I don't know. Um, you know, and I'm sure people would hear like my GPA and be like, I am not getting advice from that lady. <laughs> she just got in. <laughs> gonna be um, it's fine. That's fine. But, you know, when people do come to me, I think I might attract people who are having a hard time or who may be non-traditional. And the thing that I always say is, you know, do something you're passionate about so you have something great to write about in your personal statement. And I believe in the power of getting to know people. And I think mm. that's one of the me. I didn't get into medical school in a lot of places. I didn't get residency interviews at a lot of places, but the places that I did were because of relationships I had developed. I think I was at AAMC conference when I was yeah. pre-med and I met, um, oh gosh, I can see his face, the Dean of Admission at, at University of Colorado. Um, and he remembered me. And then I went and visited the campus and I met up with him again. Um, and he called me to offer me admission when I wow. got in. Like, wonderful. So I feel like there are a lot of ways to to get in, to make an impression, to figure out how to increase your odds that are like beyond the numbers. And I don't know if you've had guests who've talked about sort of the standardized tests and, you know, how they're designed and whether or not we're at, it, at an advantage or disadvantage as persons of color or depending on our, our academic background. But um, I think there is some attention being paid to that now in admissions processes and also residency applications. So um, yeah, so I think that's a good thing. It's fantastic. And, and I, I, there are people out there that specialize in advice. I know Renee Darko, she's on the Docs Outside the Box podcast. And I think she has a, a company, Medec, I believe is the name. And then she has a lot of resources for pre-meds and folks getting into medical school. So if that's okay. you, um, you know, there's, there's resources out yeah. there. Not, not yes. for me, but they're out there. <laughs> so, so Bianca, we talked a lot about college. I think it's just natural um, transition to the work you're doing now because you finished fellowship, you've been practicing, but I noticed, mm -hmm. you know, about a year ago now a rebrand on social media, mm -hmm. Bianca Bush, the college psychiatrist. So, mm -hmm. um, and you know, the name says it all, but I'm sure there's, there's so much more that you're doing. But can you explain this new path you've taken and what specifically you're doing for the the patients that, that you're yeah. practicing on? Yeah, you know, I um, took a look. So I did this program called Black in Business with Goldman Sachs. Shout out Melissa Bradley um, and the whole team at Black no in relation. Business. Right. I'm like, do you know Melissa Bradley? She's incredible. If she if she was your cousin, I would say that's great. All right. But um, 
But uh, no, so I did this program last fall and just really thinking about who was I seeing, who was I excited and passionate about seeing sort of in my Mm. business coaching. Um, And I love seeing college students. They're so fun. You know, it's this place where they're gaining some independence, first time being away from home. They're discovering new romantic relationships. They're figuring out how to study in a new setting. They're figuring out what their majors are going to be. So it's just a fun group to work with. And then I think one thing that makes me uniquely poised and and part of the founding principles of the college psychiatrist is that I have a developmental approach as a child and adolescent psychiatrist. And so, you know, 18 is like an arbitrary number. Nobody's like totally grown at 18. Sometimes people do have to be grown at 18, depending on their family circumstances, if they, they have to live out, make it on their own. Um, but a lot of the times parents are still intimately involved in your life in one way or another. And so, you know, in medicine, we have this cutoff and, and it's also um, something that is, is legal, right? Like at 18, we have to get consent to talk to your parents about your care. Hmm. It makes sense in some ways, but in some ways it doesn't. You know, there are things that people don't remember from their birth or their early childhood that are really um, influential in their later life. And so I talk to parents, of course, with the student's permission, but I think it's important a lot of the times to get that information, to understand what they're, where they're coming from in the family. And then sometimes to help with that uh, separation, individuation that comes with becoming a young adult, right? And so that is something that is unique about the college psychiatrist. And, and one of the reasons why I felt like, okay, Definitely people are doing this, but in general, when someone turns 18, they go to the adult psychiatrist and it's very different from seeing a child psychiatrist. For child psychiatry, we're really getting the parents involved. They're a part of the visit. And then a lot of the times at 18, that just doesn't happen. So I think this is kind of can create a smoother transition. So it's they're really exciting. They're a lot of fun. Working with the parents, those are key things. Oh, and the other thing is that since I've trained in a lot of different places, I have licenses in multiple states. So uh, another thing that happens when kids go to college is that they have to stop seeing their previous doctors. And that is hard to have to find someone new when you get where you're going. Student health centers are excellent. Depending on where you are, the services may be robust or not. And so, you know, a lot of the times student mental health centers have the capacity to provide like six to eight counseling sessions, but they can't do long-term work. Some will prescribe stimulants, some won't. So it just can vary the kind of care, you know, will you have continuity of care as you move on to college in a different state? And so that's something that because I have multiple licenses, I can be helpful with. And so I'm building a practice with other docs that have, are similarly licensed and have a uh, passion for this so that we can really serve, serve students. This is, that's fantastic. So you are doing like psychiatric medical care and, and your, your patient focus is the college student. Right. Yes. So I pr- provide psychotherapy, prescribed medicines, um, and just in college students is the focus. So the 18 to 25 um, right now, I'm licensed in Illinois, Texas, Massachusetts, and New York, um, mm-hmm. and I'm planning on getting a few more licenses. And the docs that I have in my practice are additionally licensed um, in California and Florida. So they have California, New York, and Florida. So we cover some good ground with those states. 
Yeah. When you have uh, patients, like how do they normally come to you? Or is it the the student that is finding you and, and bringing them to their parents or is the parents finding you first? A mix. It's a mix. Uh, a lot of times it'll be parents that say, hey, my child is starting college here. They need to see someone. But obviously I'm going to work with the students. So they need to kind of see who I am, see if we vibe, see if we connect. And so they might reach out to me separately we meet and they say like yeah she's cool or she's lame i don't want to see her um <laughs> either one and and we go from there sometimes students reach out to me themselves so it's it's a mix yeah and then what are some of the top conditions that you that you see people for as i imagine there's like you know in college there's a lot of people going through a lot of the same yet different transitions so like what kind mm-hmm. of i guess person should should seek you out mm-hmm I see people who um, have depression, you know, and that can look like having a hard time getting to class, having a hard time getting out of bed, just not feeling right, being more tearful, sad. Sometimes it might come after a big event. You know, midterms is a lot of the times that at midterms, after midterms, when people reach out because they're in distress and things didn't go the way that they hoped that they would. That dovetails into anxiety. I see a lot of people with anxiety, generalized anxiety, where they're just kind of worried, worried about everything, different phobias, different types of phobias, panic disorder, OCD. Those are things that I see a lot. Obviously, ADHD is another one. People with learning differences like dyslexia, that kind of thing. Those things don't go away when you go to college. And so I work with different students to get accommodations, writing them letters so that they can get some accommodations at school. I do have a few patients that have bipolar disorder. So they may have uh, a mania or hypomania and then depressive episodes. I don't often see, even though this is a, a big time for the emergence of psychosis, will often present between the ages of 17 to mid-20s. It's later for women, earlier for men. I don't see as much of that in my private practice because I feel like patients with those symptoms are best served in person and with a, a full team. Okay. Um, but that is something, a condition that can um, occur. And if someone does come across, you know... Um, contacts me with that. I try to get them to the right place locally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that they can get treatment. Cause I want people to get good care, you know? Yeah. This is uh, such an incredible um, thing that you're doing. I think back to my experience in undergrad and I'm sure you think back to yours. It's like, uh, I don't know where I didn't know how to get to the student health center period, let alone, you know, see somebody for, for any uh, medical issues I may have had. Yeah. And for us as physicians and, and residents, you know, we, we were pre-med students at one time. Residency's definitely not any less stressful. I remember my first patient I lost in residency was due to self-harm and ingestion. And they were um, a college student, you know, after midterms. So, it you know, it's going to affect us in most areas of our practice, from emergency medicine to surgery, right. um, obviously psychiatry. So... I mm-hmm. am thrilled to see that you've started this work and excited to see where, where it goes. In addition to, you talked about your partners, you can um, look up the practice. It's www.psychiatrist.com. Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, And this, you know, um, if you'll look, when you look at the website, 
but actually you're talking about how to get connected to people on campus as an undergrad is actually what we're talking about this month in our free PDF. Um, so you can go to the website, download it, just give some tips on how to, how do you find the student counseling center? Where do you go? Um, if you can't be seen at the student counseling center, what next? And so just have some practical tips for you to get connected while it's targeted to college students. There's stuff that will be relevant for, um, residents, uh, you know, starting residency, you're in a new city or something like that. So there are resources on there that could also be helpful to you. And, and yes, I did write down um, collegepsychiatrist.com. So I would uh, be able to read that off and I, I still mess that up. So um, it, as we, we start to wrap up, you've also created some toolkits and some products that people mm-hmm. can use. And, and I, I, this isn't a commercial for you listening, but for everybody that comes on this show, I am so grateful that they take so much time out of their busy schedule. A lot of people do have um, passion projects or or practices, so I do want to give them the opportunity to, to talk about some of the things that they're offering to to their patients. So I, I know you have a couple deliverables. Can you kind of mention what those are and what they do? Yeah, so I have this, I call it TCP, the College Psychiatrist TCP Coping Kit, and it's really designed to add comfort um, for the student's life. And it's just like a care package, essentially. So that's actually one of the first things I thought about having when I started the college psychiatrist. I said, dang, wouldn't that have been nice to get a care package that was specifically for mental health or relaxing? I mean, care huh. packages are nice in general. You know, get your favorite snacks, get a nice pair of socks, whatever. You get a, a stress ball in there or something? Well, I thought about that, but no, um, no, I didn't end up getting the having those in the final ones. It was actually like a, a self-warming eye mask. Oh. Yeah, you may not even be a college student and you'll want this, like, because hmm. uh, it's nice. What else do we have in there? Colored pencils. Um, we've got a warm, fuzzy blanket. We've got a face scrub. Um, and a lot of the products are by um, minority-owned, Black-owned businesses. So, yeah, it's, it's a great thing. What else do we have there? Oh, I have these really cool stickers that I had an Etsy artist make that you can put on your water bottles, your laptops. There's a focused aromatherapy mist that you can spray while you're studying or if you need to relax. So there are 10 items in there that are really great. You can also find it at collegepsychiatrist.com. Um, the TCP coping kit is right there in the menu. And... Um, Right now, if you order, they'll be delivered in September. We wanted them to be delivered when people are on campus. But if you're not a student, that's fine. It'll just come to your house. <laughs> um, you can you can catch it too. So yeah, check it out. Um, if you think there's something else that should be in there for the next time around, let me know and we can incorporate that. Love it. I think back in our day, all we had was the uh, squishy stress balls. That was our mental health package. <laughs> that's why we're so messed up. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Dr. Bush, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been so great to chat and reconnect. And hopefully, I, I know you have a very busy practice, but there are always issues that are coming up in the the world of mental health. Some of the things I think you even talked about recently was discussing or, or uh, disclosing that you, you received treatment for mental health to yeah. medical boards. I think you wrote an article about that or are you, is that available? Yeah, someone had written an article about that recently. Um, and yeah, I think that's something that we can definitely talk about. Do you disclose, how do you disclose? 
some states have uh, changed their rules on their their um, applications for a physician license so that you do not have to disclose. And the hope is that this will encourage physicians to get treatments that will reduce the shame, the stigma, so that they'll be able to get treatments. So, yeah. I'm like, we have all, all sorts of stuff we can talk about. And, and you post you post these like kind of quick things on your social media, which is... It's just at College Psychiatrist. Okay. You can, yeah, you can find <laughs> me on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. I'm on threads. I think I posted two things. Maybe I'll post some more, but I'm on there. But really Instagram and TikTok um, and Facebook, those are, are the most active places at College Psychiatrist. Awesome. Well, Dr. Bush, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. And we're so excited to hopefully see you again, hear from you soon in the future. And we'll, we'll keep an eye on the yeah. things you're, you're doing. Absolutely. Oh, gosh. I, I literally wrote down college psychiatrist and uh, <laughs> still got it wrong. All right. It's all good.